Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, again, uh, thank you to the organizers of another uh, very special Capital Inn conference. Uh, our topic, um, and I'll introduce our panel in a moment, is industry challenges and the road map ahead. Well, the last 10 years, it's been a very rocky road. Uh, will the road with or without a map be rocky for the next 10 years? Uh, you know, we don't want to say, we don't know. But um, one thing I think is, is very clear is that the big challenge is change itself. And it's coming fast, ready or not. Uh, we have on our panel uh, from the far left, uh, Captain Scott J. Kelly, uh, the Office Chief of the Operating and Environmental Standards Division of the U.S. Coast Guard at Coast Guard Headquarters. Uh, to his right is Jan Hagen Anderson, Business Development Director of uh, one of the major class societies, if not the biggest of them all. I sometimes have trouble remembering which one is bigger uh, or biggest. It's a little bit like ship registries. Uh, that's DNV. GL. Uh, Jan is based um, in Katy, Texas, which is a part of the greater Houston-Harris County area. Uh, to his right is uh, Kathy Metcalf, Kathy J. Metcalf, who many of you know is an expert on absolutely everything to do with the regulation <laughs> of shipping. Uh, she is uh, the guru to end all gurus, uh, which I, I hope that doesn't sound as bad as I think it's it is. scaring me now. <laughs> President and CEO of the Chamber of Shipping of America. And finally, a man uh, next to me who, like me, rejoices in two middle initials, Joseph E.M. Hughes. Uh, Joe is the chairman and CEO of what is known as the American Club, don't let his uh, Anglo-Welsh accent fool you. He's an American too. Uh, and he also is a, 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 like all maritime lawyers, an expert on everything. Joe was a barrister before he became an honest man and joined the insurance industry. Uh, the American Club is managed by the Ship Owners Claims Bureau and is based, it's the only P&I club based here in the United States. Uh, thank you very much again for joining us, and thank you for being part of our audience. Uh, I'm going to start uh, with uh, Kathy. Um, we've heard about the sulfur cap at 2020. Could you, in your own words, tell the jury, as I like to say, uh, in other words, very briefly, where, we, where do we really stand on the sulfur cap right now? <clears throat> well, thank you for having me on this panel, <clears throat> and I do not know everything about everything I know a little bit about a lot of stuff, but that's good enough. Probably not enough to get rich off of. Um, <clears throat> sulfur cap. I was extremely educated at the last panel when they started talking about that because that is the business side of shipping. I'm on the operational side of shipping, having sailed, come ashore, and I live with our member companies day to day trying to comply with what is now and what is going to be. So the only thing I would add to the discussion on the, on the sulfur cap, <clears throat> there's a couple things that, that I would like to throw out for consideration that might just change some of those charts. One is the ongoing debate at IMO on the greenhouse gas affair. Uh, part of the greenhouse gas affair is going to be ultimately a market-based measure, in my opinion, and that's either going to be an emissions trading system or a bunker levy. 
And I would suggest that we should consider if it is a bunker levy, that may change the profile of good fuels versus, not good fuels, but more expensive versus less expensive. And, and the last point <clears throat> I would bring up from an operational standpoint <clears throat> is the compliance issue. <clears throat> IMO currently is debating right now as to whether or not they want to impose a requirement that if you don't have a scrubber, you shouldn't have 0.5% greater sulfur fuel on board. So that may also change the enforcement game. I will say we are completely with what the gentleman from Mayor said. We are supporting robust enforcement. No cheating, because cheating is going to save people a whole lot of money. Thank you. That's uh, pretty, pretty good uh, in, in uh, a one-minute soundbite. I wish everybody in politics were as good as you at doing these things. <laughs> Jan, you've just heard Kathy. Uh, you uh, are another ma a man who has the happy role of being a generalist within your area, which of course is engineering and, and, and naval architecture and just about everything else that a classification society does. I would imagine that most of the people in this room have only a very vague, except the people who work for the class societies, uh, have a vague idea of what a classification society is. I find that when I have to talk to the media, and I see some members of the, of the press here today, uh, that they, one of the questions they ask is, what is a class society and what is its relationship to flag states? And I wonder if you, in view of the comments that were made by a previous speaker about the role of class and the role of flag states, rather, uh, if you could say one or two words about DNBGL and its work with the flag states. Yes, uh, thank you, thank you, Clay, and thanks for inviting the panel. So, yeah, so as a, as a class society, we uh, help uh, the shipping community to, to deal with the upcoming regulations, to give them advice, and, and also uh, manage the risk to, to deal with these things. And, and, of course, from the perspective of, of the challenge of shipping, as, as uh, Cathy also mentioned, that the environmental compliance uh, and what to do and how to do it is definitely on, on the agenda. Uh, as class, of course, we have a, uh, a role to play in the sense that we uh, often serve as uh, a recognized organization by the flag states. So basically, we look at the requirements, international regulations for uh, ships and make sure that the owners and, and operators actually comply with this uh, regulation. So we have a sort of a third party independent role to make sure that the uh, that uh, the rules are followed and, and uh, owners and, and uh, operators are in compliance with this. Um, also on, on that sense, we also try to, uh, I think the challenge that we are focused on today is also how can we leverage all the information and, and, and data that we have on ship and try to make this process as simple and as transparent as possible. So the role we are looking forward in the, in the in the sort of near to medium term, long term, is basically how can we use digital tools, transform the industry, you know, make the uh, verification of the compliance on all aspects of shipping, environmental compliance, more uh, direct using the data. And this is a, a, a process we are using in our own organization to, um, how to say, um, deliver our own core services 
more uh, digital, with digital certificates that's easy to manage. The same with how ships are operated, electronic logbooks, for example, that make sure that vessels are, and it can be verified electronically and simple, that they are actually operating and complying with uh, the regulation. This, I think, will definitely reduce the burden on the crew and all the reporting requirements, all the managing all the new technologies on board, and also on the, sh the uh, uh, ship uh, and the shore-based organization, that there are so much things to uh, have an oversight over, and the more we can automate this and make it uh, more streamlined, the better it will be for the industry. Thank you, thank you, Jan. Uh, they, the burden on the crew, which you, I'm glad you brought up. One of the areas, and this is, this is where we get to you, uh, Scott, is I think everybody is trying to figure out where we go now on ballast water, the ballast water convention. The convention just entered into force, didn't it? Finally. Yes. Finally, it happened. The gun, now the gun has been fired, and the United States is not, in no, in, no doubt, we are not going to, as a nation, ratify the Correct. Water Convention. Well, at this time, we haven't uh, ratified the convention. Uh, it doesn't look that way, at least for the time being. For various reasons, many of them have nothing to do with ballast water. But, <laughs> but uh, my question to you is, uh, and this is something that Kathy and I, and I know you have been engaging ourselves with, uh, there are disconnects between the U.S. regs, the actual convention itself, the IMO, what the IMO is going to do going forward, uh, and one that I am confused about, and I'll admit it completely, is the role of states like California in all of this going forward. And I wonder if you could offer a comment on that that might enlighten us as to what's happening now, because this is one of the most expensive things coming down the road when we talk about industry challenges. Uh, well, well, first of all, thank you, Clay. I'm, I'm happy to be here, and thank you all for inviting the Coast Guard to be here. This is uh, not an audience I'm used to talking to, and um, I'm absolutely looking forward to learning more about the economic uh, drivers uh, in the marine transportation system. So, uh, Clay, I, I have to apologize. I'm not the best person here up here to talk about what the state of California or the good states thing. are doing. Um, I would actually defer to Kathy on that, because uh, that gets into the legislative lane that, that's really not an area I should get into. Um, I think that to, to I can comment on, on the larger reality that here in the United States, uh, when it comes to uh, discharges from vessels, you, of course you have the Coast Guard involved, we have our authorities, you have the EPA, and then of course you have certain states that are involved as well, and uh, all of those present challenges in their own way. I can talk for hours about the Coast Guard if you'd like, I can certainly do that, Clay, if you'd like me to do that now. No, no, don't do that. <laughs> oh, don't do that, okay. So I mean, I would defer to, to Kathy about what the state of California or Washington or other states are doing. Uh, but to, to get back to your comment about the IMO convention itself, um, there are a lot of similarities between the Coast Guard requirements and the IMO convention. The discharge standard itself is actually the same. Uh, but with that said, as you all know, the United States is moving forward with our requirements. So uh, not regardless of what happens with the convention, what we do informs our discussions at the IMO. But our regulations have been in place since 2012. And I have to say the larger message when it comes to ballast water for all of you is the Coast Guard is in compliance mode now. Our regulations have been out since 2012, and we're working to, um, to implement uh, our compliance program as consistently as possible and as transparently as possible, and I can go into more detail if you'd like. 
Well, one of the questions, and this is addressed to Kathy as well, and I, I, I buttonhole both of you, as you know, during the, during the break before we came up here, and I said, you know, it'd be neat if you could sort of engage in a dialogue, the two of you, and, and even ask each other questions. Uh, I have no idea, personally, and I'll admit this, where we are on type approvals, or even, you know, may, maybe for the benefit of our, of our, of our guests here, uh, what a type approval really is and what it entails. Does anybody want to? Yeah, I'll, I'll take that question again since it falls on our world. So uh, let me briefly talk a little bit higher about the complexity of ballast water for some of you who may not be aware. So um, first, this is a significant environmental threat, but it also has a significant impact on the economic chain. Uh, so the species that we're talking about right now are significantly small. They come in the millions. Uh, they're diverse, they're evolving, they're dynamic, and they're transient. So we have an absolute complex problem that we've been trying to address for quite a while. Um, we've made progress and there's good news. So here in the United States, we have five systems that are now type approved by the Coast Guard for use on board vessels. That means these systems have been tested to meet our discharge standard and they can be used to meet our regulations. Uh, with that said, it doesn't mean these systems are perfect. Uh, one of the messages that we like to talk to industry about is, is everybody's looking for a perfect plug and play solution. Uh, the reality of it is that we want one that the ballast water system itself I would recommend you look it upon it as a cargo treatment system. It directly impacts the way the vessel operates, the speed of which the cargo is delivered. And we're encountering and learning a number of things. The market is evolving, the systems themselves are evolving, the technology is new. As I said, this is very complex. So uh, what does a type approval mean? Uh, type approval means for the United States that it meets our discharge standards. It's been tested to do so. But with that said, uh, the best advice for folks that are running ships would be, uh, in short, to get in the game, uh, to treat it as a cargo transfer system, uh, develop uh, the design and engineering you need to use the system, select a system carefully, be very familiar with the maintenance, the requirements for what to do if your system breaks down, have a plan, a contingency plan for what to do if the system breaks down while you're in port, and also focus on training. We're discovering training is a huge element of the folk from the folks that are using these systems now. Thank you. I think that's very helpful. Kathy, uh, okay, having said that, uh, we, we said this is the roadmap ahead, right? Or at least our panel is supposed to deal with the roadmap ahead. Can you give us, uh, you know, this is like uh, going back to school. Uh, can you, on the back of a postcard, tell us what the roadmap is ahead for ballast water, knowing now that the convention's in force, knowing where the United States is headed, we think, uh, having some idea of the political climate, uh, which, by the way, is, uh, I think, probably a source of concern to some people because the attitude of the present administration is very different from that of EPA in the past administration, the Obama administration. Uh, can you give us a quick overview of what you think is going to happen in the next couple of years, uh, bearing in mind that this is a largely commercial audience? Just like any <clears throat> technology-forcing regulation, the early steps are train wrecks. Uh, I think in five years, we're not going to be talking so much about this anymore. We're going to be Boy, will that be great. <laughs> okay, I, 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 I'm optimistic, but it, as with any technology, <clears throat> a number of scientist treatment folks thinks it's very easy to marinize a land-based kind of chemistry onto a ship, which is not necessarily so. So the type approval under the type approval testing protocols work fine, but when you put them on a ship, there's a lot of engineering. What I would suggest to any ship owner out there is if you've not started to play in the game, you need to start playing now. If you're trading globally, you've got U.S. regs and the IMO regs. 
And what you need to do is start narrowing down systems that <clears throat> fit the operating profile of your particular vessels and flow rates, footprints, and your voyage patterns. Because some systems, quite frankly, have right now a 72-hour hold time. And if you're on a 24-hour voyage, that's not going to work for you. So I, I and work with your class societies. The class societies far and away are, are incredibly <clears throat> proficient in talking about fitting a piece of hardware on a ship and training, as Scott said, very important. The only other thing I'd throw out, there's some legislation attached to the Coast Guard Authorization Bill, which hopefully will get rid of the California and 18 other states problems, and that is CVDA, the Vessel Incidental Discharge Act, Commercial Vessel Incidental Discharge Act. What that would do, it would take the current EPA program with the Vessel General Permit, take the Coast Guard regs, and turn them into one set of regulations that applies to commercial ships while in U.S. waters. And that will go a long way to getting rid of this IMO, U.S., state, and in some cases local. California, well, that's just a whole other story. It is another story. They, they've set a discharge standard that is impossible to measure. Right? Zero detect, essentially, is what they've done. Uh, instead of changing their discharge standard and backing off to a little bit more realistic standard, they just keep moving the application of it out in time. So they've got to stop changing their, their watch and actually start looking at what they're trying to accomplish. It is possible to do what the IMO Convention and the U.S. regs are asking us to do, but there's going to be some growing pains. <clears throat> Thank you. It's a, a sobering assessment. Uh, is there any, Kathy, is there any prospect, before we leave you, <laughs> give you a little break, uh, that the, we can square the circle, that California's uh, proposal, because it is a proposal. It's legislation already. It's legislation already, but it's not in effect yet. It is in effect. It is, okay. I, my understanding from what you just said was that it was not. Well, no, the, the California legislation is in effect. It establishes a standard and a timetable for implementation. Oh, all right, that was my question. In other words, <coughs> if I sail my container ship into the port of Long Beach, uh, California, uh, that is not, the, the actual, uh, legislation is not being implemented at the moment. Uh, the date is out. It's 2020 and okay. 2030. Okay. So you comply with the U.S. regs right now in California. As far as I understand, you're okay, except they've got their own little reporting system. Now, these folks here, as you know, and as, as you and I have discussed, are very practical people sitting in the audience today. We've got bankers, we've got lawyers, and we've got ship owners, uh, among others. Uh, I've, let's say I have a container ship. Let's say I'm Maersk and I'm sailing into the port of Long Beach, but I'm also taking it through the canal, the new Panama Canal, to the east coast of the United States. Uh, obviously, I'm gonna have to meet from what you, you and Scott have been describing, two different standards. Am I right? No. Okay. Same standard. There's some slight twists, like for instance, <clears throat> the U.S. recognizes extensions for si ships that the systems that have been type approved do mm -hmm. not fit right now. Uh, the IMO Convention does not recognize extensions. So when your implementation comes up in the IMO Convention, you've got to comply. Correct. Okay. Well, we'll go back to that and see if there are any questions. Uh, thank you very much. That's very helpful. Joe, uh, I'm going yes, to yes, ask you the question uh, to which I, I think I alluded when we, we chatted a little while ago. 
Um, I uh, have been watching, and I think a number of us have, uh, the increasing not only cost of litigation, but also the fact that there are two different kinds of VLCC. One kind of VLCC, as we all know, is the very large crude carrier. The other VLCC is a very large costly claim. Yeah. And very large and costly claim, I should say. And there are a number of them, uh, which well, there's one in particular, which I'm aware of, which is still going on. And that involves a case that we all thought was, was gone from the, from the headlines, and it involves a ship called the Prestige. The Spanish government still has a claim out there, and it's an enormous one, isn't it? It's in the billions of euros and certainly dollars and pounds sterling. And that claim is against uh, the representatives, among other things, of a P&I club. Uh, many of us in the industry who recognize the central importance of marine insurance, and P&I cover certainly, uh, want to know going forward, can the industry sustain these, uh, I, I don't like to characterize them, but I will, ridiculous claims. Which they are, and, and some of them are absolutely ridiculous. Uh, some are not. Some are very predictable. Deepwater Horizon in the Gulf of Mexico, for those of us who are lawyers, was very predictable in terms of the fact that it ran up to 60 plus billion dollars against BP, simply because those of us who have not been involved in litigation in the Gulf of Mexico know how expensive even small cases can be. Joe, my question to you is, looking at your crystal ball as, a, as an expert in the industry, and you are, where do you see us going? Can the industry, can, marine, can the underwriters, can the international group of P&I clubs sustain, and the reinsurers, of course, sustain this kind of overhang, this threat of claims yet to come as well as claims that are already out there? Well, um, well I think the short answer to that actually, Clay, is yes. But I'll elaborate, shall I? First of all, I want to say how flattered I am to be on such a distinguished panel. You should be. We, well, I am, indeed. We insurance people are simple folk, you know, mere hemp and homespuns when we're asked to predict the road ahead and so on in regard to shipping at large. And, of course, we see the world really in, principally in insurance terms, although, as you have alluded to, uh, Clay, the larger issues of... Uh, uh, of, of operational accidents and so on do affect us in, um, in many ways. And of course, there have been some very high profile large claims in recent years. The prestige is something of an anomaly in the sense that that actually goes to the legal issue as to whether in fact the government of Spain can, and I'm not an expert on the detail of the claim, I hasten to add, but it really concerns whether the government of Spain is justified in seeking to supersede its obligations under the CLC, the Civil Liability Convention, the protocols there to which, to which it is a signatory, uh, in order to establish a different right of claim against the owners, which of course far exceeds the level of compensation under the international regime. And that I think is being litigated um, at the moment. Whether I, I that's think that's the litigation. It, I'm yeah, indeed. Yeah. I, I don't know whether it goes to the European Court of Justice or the International Court of High Court of Justice or whatever. That's under litigation. Um, but on the more general point that you uh, uh, you, you raise as to whether in fact the, and I speak for the international group of P&I clubs, whether there is sustainability in terms of paying large claims, I'd say the short answer is yes, most, most assuredly. Um, leaving the prestige to one side for the moment, um, the most notoriously large claim in recent years, which occurred 
uh, at the beginning of 2012, and which I'm sure everybody is familiar with, was the Costa Concordia. And that was a claim on the international group as such for wreck removal, death, and uh, various uh, uh, ancillary uh, exposures of about one and a half billion dollars. Mm. And that was paid without a problem at all under the pooling system and under the uh, recoverability of claims for the international group's general excess of loss reinsurance cover. Perhaps I can just explain a little bit here to those perhaps yeah, who aren't so familiar about the, how the group works. The international group of P&I clubs is a collective of 13 mutuals um, who together insure about 90 to 95% of all world shipping for their third party liability risks. And that includes oil pollution, wreck removal, um, death and injury, illness of passengers and crew, uh, dock damage, certain parts of the collision risk, um, uh, wreck removal, and so on. All the major liabilities that a ship owner is likely to encounter in the course of operating his ships are covered by the clubs. And as I say, they have an extraordinarily broad span of, um, of clientele across the market as a whole. Most of them, uh, that is to say eight of them, of the 13, are based in uh, the United Kingdom. There are three in Scandinavia, two in Norway, one in Sweden. There's one in Japan. And there is the American club. And we are the uh, only, as, as Clay mentioned earlier, the only P&I club domiciled here in the Americas. Anyway, collectively, though, the, the 13 clubs operate uh, a somewhat elaborate but extremely effective and extremely um, efficient reinsurance arrangements among them, amongst themselves. The first $10 million of any one claim is borne by the individual club, the individual club retention for that claim, excess of a, a member's deductible. For the next $90 million, uh, that goes into what's known as a pooling, uh, that's in the pooling layer, the international group pool, where the clubs, rather as a kind of super mutual, contribute to each other's claims in accordance with a prescribed formula. Beyond that, excess of 100 million, up to 1.1 billion for oil pollution claims, 3.1 billion for passenger and crew claims, and for all other claims under what's known as an overspill arrangement, up to about 9 billion, all that is covered by um, reinsurance arranged on the international markets on behalf of the international group as a whole. And of course, if you have a, a single purchaser as the group that, is, that represents 90 to 95% of all world shipping in that context, um, you have a, a good deal of purchasing power. And the rates that are obtained uh, for ship owners to cover up to those very high limits are extremely competitive by any objective standards. The pool is extremely efficient because claims are only paid as and when they arise and are settled by the claiming club and then all the other clubs. There's no advance payment of premium. All the other clubs pay their share of that claim uh, as and when claims are made on them under the pooling agreement. So the integrity and the strength and the financial security of the entire system representing, as I say, 90 to 95% of world shipping subscribing to it is extremely considerable. Um, and therefore, the sustainability of the ability, uh, the sustainability of um, cover for these very large claims uh, has, will, will continue, in my view, to be uh, 
uh, to be significant. I can't see there's any major threat to it. If you take the Costa Concordia, which people were you know, reacting to with a degree of, of uh, concern as and when the claim arose and then subsequently when claims were being made upon reinsurers, in the, the event, it didn't really uh, move the needle at all in terms of cost. There was something of a, a greater allocation of cost uh, to passenger vessels, cruise ships in particular, as a result of that, because that sector of the industry had brought a disproportionately large level of claims by comparison with other areas of the shipping industry. But overall, it was easily sustainable. And in fact, the record of the international group on, on its reinsurances, excess of 100 million over the past three or four years, has been, has been very favorable. And over the last three years, the international group has been able to obtain, cumulatively, $100 million saving for ship owners across the world on the cost of their reinsurance for the very largest claims. And I think, therefore, to, 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 um, uh, to distill all that, all those observations, um, there, there is no real threat, I think, at all at the moment to any kind of uh, suggestion that the group uh, will be unable to pay any of those claims in the future. And indeed, there's so much capacity, quite honestly, on the other side of the coin, leaving aside the issue of claims, but there's so much capacity in the reinsurance market at the moment that these relatively low rates, I think, simply by virtue of the mechanics of competition are likely to re remain the same for the future. Well, thank you. That's very reassuring. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, I've heard different stories. There's a lot of... Let's not panic. No. I'm, I'm, maybe I'm feeling better now than I did uh, yesterday when I heard another story. Yeah, right. <laughs> but thank you very much. Uh, now, in the time that we have available, I'd like to look out over the audience. Are there any questions? And if you do have a question, please raise your hand, and could somebody please give you a microphone so you can be heard up here? Are there any questions? I can't see any questions at all on any of the things that we've talked about. Bear in mind that what we've discussed is only a very small part of the industry challenges uh, that, uh, are, are that lie ahead. Uh, Joe, I'm going to come back to you for a second, if I may. You are chairman of... There's a question there. Did somebody raise their hand? You see, you've got to be visible. Yeah, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm skinny. Okay. I uh, could you speak loudly into the microphone? Thank you. All right. Um, first, thanks everybody. This is like a great panel and, and a rare opportunity. Um, I actually have a question about something that Kathy touched upon in the beginning about people who are new in the game. If um, anybody on the panel can address uh, your advisement for people who are young professionals and starting out in the industry of finance and shipping and trade, uh, because it's very tough right now all these regulations and red tape and everything, it looks really nearly impossible. And here we are, new grads breaking into the industry and it looks really, whether we're doing apprenticeships with major corporations or starting out with new firms, it looks almost impossible. That's a really good question. Oh, and Kathy, for women in the industry also. Sorry? For women in the industry also. There's a little extra. Well, I've, I'd love to hear what you have to say about that. Well, I'm really old. <laughs> so, so it's hard to relate, but I will try. Um, not as old as I am. <laughs> oh, man. But I'm not a woman, so. I, I know we're short for time. One of the topics we were going to discuss was where do we get tomorrow's officers? Where do we get tomorrow's executives, <clears throat> business leaders in the shipping industry? And 
FastStream just did a survey, and I was kind of astonished. I, I always thought that when I got out of the academy, I'd sail for a while, and I'd just, you know, come ashore and poof, that would be it perfectly. The best advice I can give to, to, to young people entering this industry is don't make your plan too far out in time because in my case, I was going to sail, get a master's license, which I didn't, and then I was going to sail forever, get a gold watch, and retire in Myrtle Beach. Uh, it didn't happen that way. And I came ashore, so I guess the first thing is don't plan your life to the end. Second thing is be flexible in what you're able to do. This industry, and having been in the first class of women to go through the academy, I honestly have to tell you, I have never encountered discrimination in this industry in any other way than what a young cadet on a ship would get from a senior officer. So whether it's right or wrong, I, uh, we all know there's a big harassment discussion with the academy not too long ago, and I, I found it difficult. But so, so steal yourself a little bit. It is the marine industry. And it, if you do go on a ship or have an opportunity, even if you're on the shore bay side, to get on a ship and to sail for a while, it's absolutely invaluable because everything we do now that we're ashore impacts that mariner in some way. Mm. And, and so uh, the discussion about training, autonomous ships, I mean, I, I think now I walked on a bridge of a new, a new launch chemical carrier, I didn't even recognize it. You don't stand to watch anymore, you sit to watch. And there are 50 million screens around you. And I keep having to remind myself that a lot of these people that can manage all this data, they still make you put windows on the bridge. So let's not forget to look out. That's the advice I give to young people. Don't forget to look out. Are you speaking to the U.S. Navy or are you speaking? <laughs> no. <laughs> That's, that was an excellent question. There's a lot more that we yeah. can say on that. We don't have the time, but uh, I agree with you, Kathy. Uh, I'm, I'm a real old codger in this, in this business, but within the last 10 years, I've been on one Jones Act ship, and I learned a lot just watching that ship operate between Tacoma and Anchorage, Alaska, that I never knew before after all these years. There's no substitute for actually getting on a ship, and I'm not talking about a cruise ship, I'm talking about a commercial vessel, as in, in whatever way you can. Uh, beg, borrow, or steal, but get on the ship, watch the crew at work, watch the cadets at work, watch the training of cadets. Kathy is a graduate of Kings Point, the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy. Yes. Uh, Only they have a, what they call a summer sea year, where cadets train on board, which I had a chance to witness. That's a remarkable feature. Actually, it's six months of your second and third year. Yeah. So it's a full year. You have to get 365 days except for your license. But I don't want to say going to sea is the only way because I've read the bios of a number of people here. Our business, our industry is driven by smart people that never sailed. I would just suggest if you want to try and get your experience factor, get both sides of the equation. The business side is pretty easy to get as you're moving through the shore force. It's difficult to get the shipboard side. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you, everyone. I think we're out of time. Uh, to the great relief of Nick Bornosis, who I want to thank again, along with his staff who are here, all of you, uh, for putting on this wonderful conference again.
Thank you again. Let's give the panel a round of applause. <laughs>